you have your Bible with you, how about if you um, open it up to Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11, if you don't mind putting your finger in both of those places. If you don't have a Bible with you, you'll find them in the pew racks in front of you and you can follow along that way. If, um, and, and if you want, you can just watch on the screen. It'll be up there as well. Luke chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to put a portion of Matthew chapter 6 on the screen. Seven words, which I believe are probably very, very familiar to you. Anybody know what that's from? Lord's Prayer, right? Seven words on earth as it is in heaven. Chances are you've never linked it with Revelation chapter 8. And I want to put that on the screen for you. Revelation chapter 8. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. I don't know how John knew when a half hour went by. He didn't have a watch, and there's no clocks in heaven, but for about a half hour, there's something going on, silence, where there had never previously been silence. Right now, we understand there's angels in heaven, the cherubim, the seraphim, the highest order of the angels are calling out, holy, 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 and we're told according to God's word, they never stop doing this. The saints are there, those who have gone before us, those who died in Christ. The, the 10,000 times 10,000 times 10,000 angels. Th- this silence is so startling because it's never happened before, but yet in heaven, there's silence. So profound is one particular movement of God that heaven falls silent, and God has the full attention of every spiritually attuned being in the universe. Nothing. Now, I understand, according to Scripture, that there's on one hand what you can count times in which there was absolute silence on earth or unbridled enthusiasm. Opposite ends of the spectrum. The first one would be, we're told, at the creation of the planets, at the creation of earth. According to Scripture, the angels exploded in exultation for God. Just began praising and praising and praising. But also in Genesis, we see at the time of the flood of Noah, there was so much silence because God's judgment had come on the earth. You couldn't hear anything. Again, when you see God coming against Egypt in judgment, we're told according to the book of Exodus, you couldn't even hear a dog barking. There was no noise. Transfer over to the New Testament, Jesus arrives on the scene, his birth is announced, and the angels again explode in joy, and there's all kinds of adulation. So you can count on one hand those times of either extreme noise or extreme silence. This moment in Revelation 8 is a moment unlike any other that's ever been known. Silence in heaven. And I'll speculate with you why. Just understand this is speculation because the Bible doesn't tell us. When the seventh seal is broken, we understand it's during the period of what's known as the tribulation period. The Antichrist is present on planet earth at that period of time and the seventh seal 
is the signifying indication that the tribulation period has come to an end. The seventh seal, meaning God's scroll is completely opened and his plan for bringing his kingdom is made evident to everyone in heaven. All of the spiritually attuned beings in that moment, waiting in suspense, I think, are seeing God's plan worked out. And what I know for sure, no speculation whatsoever, Jesus instructed us to approach God with one specific thought in mind. I want you to see this verse up on the screen. Luke 11.2 and Matthew 6.10 both say the same thing. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. What does it look like to get God's will done here on earth? Because that prayer, that's never been answered. You understand that Jesus instructed us to begin praying that 2,000 years ago and has not yet come to be. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We have not yet seen God's kingdom visibly here on earth. So here's the occasion by which I ask you to go to Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11. If you have your finger there, you'll understand the setting. Jesus is praying, and his disciples are listening in. And one of them, apparently Jesus is praying out loud. He's audibly, they can hear him. One of the disciples speaks up and begins to say, hey, I'd, I'd like to know how to pray like you. They want to know how to be like Jesus. Now, when I graduated flight school and, and finished college, I had a friend who was younger than me um, who said to me, you know, I think I'm going to go to flight school too. I want to be a pilot. And I said, oh, that's cool. Great. Why would you want to do that? And he said, well, I figured if you can do it, anybody can do it. And so I figured, <laughs> I think I'm going to do that. And I didn't know how to take that at the time. But it, this prayer request is the same way. He's saying, we want to understand. Praying is the same thing. It's not beyond your ability to talk to God like Jesus talked to God. And that's why the disciple is really bold. So let's begin by asking ourselves this question. What does it mean to have conversation with God? From his point of view, what does it mean to God for you to talk to him? Now, let me put this quote up on the screen for you to see. The purpose of prayer is really this. Not to get my will done on earth. Not to get my will done in heaven. But to get God's will done on earth. That's really the purpose of prayer. That's why Jesus started out, if you're going to pray, pray this way. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Not to get man's will done in heaven, but to get God's will done on earth. Even if that involves judgment. Because that's what really the request of God's kingdom to come is. The second coming of Christ means judgment upon planet earth. Uh, let's just be honest with each other. When we start talking about prayer, it kind of falls into one of two categories for people. Either extremely boring, why are we talking about this? Or really intimidating, in a category that people don't want to go to because it's so uncomfortable for them. Most people kind of frame their, their thinking around prayer by weddings and funerals because a lot of people who are not church people, that's where they're really only exposed to it. They go to funerals, they go to weddings, they hear somebody pray, and they're not sure how to do it themselves. And so this is how most people arrive at their prayer time. They think if I say just the right words, maybe if I throw in a few these and thous, words that I never typically use in my conversation, um, and, and maybe if I use some really, really big words, and I say, Lord, 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 a whole lot, maybe then he'll listen to me. And let me pick on Rick Turner for just a minute, okay, Rick? Okay. So let, let, let's say I'm having a conversation with my friend Rick. And I come to Rick and I say, hey, Rick, would you lend me thine ear? 
and, and begin to um, hear what I have to say, Rick, because I have something really important to say to you, Rick, because, Rick, what I want to talk to you about is so much on my heart, Rick, that, see, that's how people pray. Lord, if you would listen to me, because, Lord, we know that you're not listening, and we want you, Lord, will you turn your attention toward us, Lord, and we don't talk to God like a friend. What would your friend say if you repeated their name over and over and over again in the course of a one-minute subject? Rick would probably find the door and leave me standing in the atrium. That, that's how many people approach God. So we really want to think through, how do we talk to him? Why do we talk to him? In what manner are we supposed to approach to him? Approach him. So here, let me encourage you this way this morning. If, if you long for a freshness in the way that you communicate with God, pay very close attention to this. And I'm not suggesting there's a hidden formula. It's not that there's some secret here. But here's what I do know. When God sits down on a hillside and he says, when you talk to me, this is the way I want you to talk to me, we better pay attention and really listen up. So that's what the disciples are saying here. Will you teach us how to pray? Well, why would they ask that? Let's look. Luke 11.1 1 says this. It happened that while Jesus was praying, in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, Jesus is really consistent. If you study the Scripture, you find that early in the morning, he's out in some quiet place talking to God. In the evening, he's in some quiet place talking to God. Prayer is just the <gasps> spiritual air that Jesus breathes. And here's a disciple who isn't sure he knows how to pray. He understands Jesus does. He's listening to Jesus. And he says, what he's doing is different than the leaders that I've been exposed to all my life. I want to understand this. Now, this individual, like all the other disciples, were raised in Jewish synagogues. So they've heard the scribes pray. They've heard the Pharisees pray. They've heard the elders of the synagogue pray. And they've inherited some kind of a tradition. Is that you this morning? When you talk to God, do you talk to him because of the tradition that your mom passed on to you? Or your dad? Or your grandparents? The way that you heard them talk? It's just the way that you naturally do it? This guy has a knowledge of God and prayer, but it's been inherited by tradition. And so when he hears Jesus, it reaches the point where uh, Jesus connects with God. How do I do that? Teach me. Now understand, the prayers of the rabbis in the first century were very, very formulated, very ritualistic. And, and they almost went into the semi-conscious mode where they would teach it to their disciples and the disciples would just say it through rote memory, repeating the same thing over and over and over again. You may have grown up in a tradition in, in a church where people have taught you certain things to pray and you just pray it over and over and over again. My mom did that to us as kids because my dad was not a believer in Christ. And so as we're growing up as children, my dad came to Christ when I was a teenager. But, you know, between the ages of five that I can remember and maybe 13 or 14, we had this standard prayer that we would do every time we sat down at the dinner table. And whenever my mom taught it to us, I don't know. I can't remember it ever popping into existence. It was just always there. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. By his hands we all are fed. Let us thank him for our bread. You, you remember that one? Yeah. A few of you are familiar with that. Okay. Our parents drilled that into us, some, some kind of a memory. And I remember hitting like the age of 12 or 14 or something and saying, can we not just talk to God the normal way? And my whole family was like, what? There is no other way. Well, yeah, normal conversation with God. And so for the, for the rabbis, they went to this place where 
they repeated what's known as the Shemona, uh, the Esrei, the, the 18 embodied prayers. And, and then they repeated a morning, noon, and night. And if you were really, really faithful, if you were really, really loyal to God, you would say all 18 of them, the long version. And you would do a morning, noon, and night because length was mistaken for sincerity. That's what people thought. That's why Jesus said this in Mark 12, 40. He's talking about the scribes. He said, for appearance sake, they offer long prayers, thinking that they're going to be heard for their many words. And then look at this one, Matthew 6, 7. He said, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they'll be heard for their many words. Now, this meaningless repetition, it doesn't mean that when you come back to God with the same thing over and over and over again, that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the vain babbling, meaningless repetition, things that you've just learned by memory and you say over and over and over again. Now, a repeat request doesn't make it vain repetition. Jesus prayed for certain things over and over and over again. I like what Bob Cook said, so I'm going to show you his quote on the screen because I can really relate to this. All of us have one routine prayer in our system, and once we get rid of it, then we can really start to pray. You identify with that? Absolutely. We fall into that mode. I, I do it. I, this, this morning, 6.30 in the morning, you know, I'm up, and I, I go in the living room, and I get on my knees and begin praying, and I find myself right back into that vain repetition again. And I actually had to stop and say, sorry, God, I'll come back in a few minutes. I just taught on this last night, you idiot. You know, it's like, man... How do we do that? We fall into these patterns instead of forgetting we're coming before the Lord of glory and we want to talk to him as our father. So let's see how Jesus said to do this. Mark, Matthew 6, 6 says this, but you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your father. You know, the inner room is very interesting because in the first century, um, the, the typical Jew lived in a one-room house. They, they weren't all affluent people like you read about some of the individuals in Scripture. The, the mass of people had just one-room homes. And the attached room, the only one room that was attached, the inner room, was actually the pantry. That's what Jesus is referring to when he says the inner room. So when you think of a place where people stored their food, that was the only room in the house typically that had a door. And Jesus is saying, if you need to, go to your pantry Close the door behind you so you can have this place where you can shut out everything else. Go to the most secluded private place you can find so you won't be distracted. It might be your bathtub for you with the shower curtain drawn over. Some place where people won't bug you so that you can talk to your father. I have a friend who told me eight years ago that when he goes into prayer time, serious prayer time, and I'm not talking about like going to Culver's and sitting down and thanking God for your hamburger. I'm talking about serious prayer time. This friend told me that when he sits down to do that, he takes a notepad with him, and he begins during prayer to write down things. And I thought, wow, that's cool. You're so spiritual that you would write down the things that God's telling you. And he said, no, I'm writing down things like change the oil in my car, uh, pick up dog food, don't forget to get my daughter to the doctor. And I said, why? And he said, because once I get my agenda off my mind and on that paper, then I can really hear from God. See, we've got to shut things out. We've got to get our agenda out of the way because we're praying for God's kingdom to come. Not for my will to be done in heaven, but God's will to be done on earth. So look at with me at Matthew 6, 9 because it says this. Pray then in this way. This is Jesus instructing us. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Now, in the Old Testament, especially among the, the ancient Jews, there is this sense that God was unapproachable. He's behind the Holy of Holies. He's in the inner room in the temple. And only the high priest can go and see him. And that was only once a year. And so for the average person, God was just far off. He's distant. He's the one that made Mount Sinai rumble. And you want to stay away from there. That's the God that they had in their mind. And Jesus arrives on the scene and he says, our Father. And he brings this sense of intimacy. And you know what he's done right there with that, that word? He's given you permission. He said, pray then in this way, our Father. He just gave you permission to talk to God as your Father, not as this distant being. I, I've noticed four things as I've worked through this. I didn't put it in your notes this morning, so I'm just going to mention them real quick. Uh, four things that I see Jesus doing very specifically. The first thing that I notice that he does is he establishes communication with God in such a way that it has this sense of intimacy. Let me help you picture it in your mind. If you can remember far enough back to when you were a child, and maybe it was a cold night, and somebody came in your room during the night and put an extra blanket on you, it's that sense of, wow, our Father. This intimacy that God has just wrapped you in his arms. And so it's very respectful, but it's intimate at the same time. And it's because through Jesus, We've become the spiritual children of God. That's what we're told. Because of the blood of Jesus, we're adopted as sons and daughters. That's why Jesus said this in John 20, 17. Jesus said to her, he's talking to Mary right at the moment after the resurrection, I ascend to my Father and who? Your Father. To my God and your God. He belongs to you. Look with me on the screen at Romans 8, 17. You have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Daddy! That's what the word Abba is. I, I always know when one of my daughters, who will remain nameless, Mackenzie, comes and wants something. <laughs> when she walks in the room, and she's looking at me with a glare right now. When, when, when I hear, Daddy, my next words are usually, what do you want, Mackenzie? Because I know that sense of intimacy. The word daddy is used in very rare occasions. And, and that's what we're told, according to Scripture, that God looks at us as his children. We can look at him as our daddy, Abba, Father, respectfully, not the old man upstairs, but the one whose name is Holy but yet he looks at us as his children. Here's the second thing I see Jesus doing. He's really exalting the holiness of God when he uses this phrase, hallowed be your name. Now, if there is ever a word that sounds like a church word, it's hallowed, right? The word hallowed, I mean, that's got church written all over it. You don't use that in normal conversation. But yet Jesus puts this one out there. He says, hallowed be your name. And it sounds really archaic. But here's the real meaning behind it. May your name be held holy. Now, we're not just talking about the title of God. God's people were told to keep his name, the title, holy. Look with me on the screen. Leviticus 22 says this, You shall not profane my holy name, but I will be sanctified. Do you know what the word sanctified actually is translated from? The word hallowed. Look with me on the screen. Hallowed equals sanctified. The two words are interchangeable. So when God says my name will be sanctified, he means my name will be held holy. It will be hallowed. So what Jesus is telling us here, this is an act of worship. Psalm 111 says that when you come before God, you recognize He is awesome. 
The word is Yahweh in the Hebrew language. He is Yahweh. He's beyond everything else. Nothing else that we can understand compares to him. But here we're talking about more than a title. God's name is not just a title. It's all that he is. It's his character. How he's been faithful in your life. Here's the way I can help you to flesh that one out. Moses on Mount Sinai. He cries out to God and he says, I want to see you. I've done all these things that you've asked me to do. Now will you show yourself to me? And God's response is, nobody can see me and live, but I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll pass by and I'll proclaim my name before you. Now that's a big deal to God. Because when Moses said, what is your name? God said, I am that I am. Well, naturally, we'd want to say, I I am what? Well, I am. It encompasses everything. So when God passes by Moses, do you know what he cries out? Listen to this. It comes from Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. See, God links his character and his name. I am holy. I am righteous. I am just. I am pure. So hallowed be your name because that's what you've been in my life. The third thing I see Jesus do is he's making the ask now. Go with me to verse 10, Matthew 6:10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So he's requesting to see the rule of God. This is God reaching forward in time saying, when you pray, you pray that my kingdom will come. Why? Because Jesus understood the king and the kingdom are synonymous. The two come completely together. They're inseparable. And so we're supposed to continue praying for this. And here's a really obvious fact. I'm just going to state it anyways. God is not now ruling on earth as he is in heaven. It may take just a minute for you to get your theological mind around that. But ponder that for a moment. In heaven, angels bow before him. Everyone in his presence proclaims, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. Everyone does his will. When he snaps his fingers, people pop to attention. Is that the case on planet earth? Or did you wake up this morning learning that Christians were executed in Pakistan as they left their church because somebody decided to explode a bomb at the door as they walked out of the building? Or did you turn on your news yesterday and find that 36 people were executed in a mall in Nairobi, Kenya because the people who were doing the executing said, we're not here to kill the Muslims. We want to kill anybody that's not a Muslim. So anybody who's a Muslim can leave, but we're going to kill the rest. Is that sounding like God's rule on earth? No. See, God's kingdom, God's rule is in heaven, but it's not here on earth. So it's a really obvious fact, but it's not present. So Jesus said your prayer has got to be for Christ to return, to establish his earthly kingdom, to put down sin. For the kingdom to come is to ask for the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's what we're really praying for. For the King of kings and the Lord of lords to return in glory. And in that day, that prayer will finally be answered. So for those of you who really love theology, and I know there's a few of you, the word come is in your notes this morning, but I popped it up on the screen just for this one tidbit. The word come is the word erkomai. 
And when Jesus uses it, it means instantaneous. That'll woke a few people up, right? <laughs> instantaneous. So the word come is used only in specifics where God's going to do something instantly. Jesus used it in Matthew. I want you to see it up on the screen because it comes from Matthew 24. He said specifically, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. That's the same word, erkomai. It means in a moment, he's going to be here. Now, the fourth thing that I see is Jesus saying, I want your will to be done. And he very specifically says, the purpose of prayer is not to get my will done in heaven, but God's will done on earth. So he says, your will be done. That means the whole entire planet earth conformed to the will of God. The very fact that Jesus is telling you to pray for God's will to be done on earth tells me that it's not currently being done. Now, I'll give you an example. This may help you to understand a little bit how the church approaches this. Let's go back to the first century and think of Peter. And Peter is being um, thrown in jail. He's gone to the temple. He's preached about Jesus. He's talked to people who are Jews who are not believers and began talking about who Jesus is. As a result, the temple guard takes him and they throw him in prison. That night, a bunch of people who are from a church decide to gather together and they get in one house, Mary's house, and they begin praying that God will release Peter from prison. So an angel shows up and unlocks the door and lets Peter out and leads him out. So Peter comes to the house where they're all praying and the next thing you see in Scripture is Acts chapter 12. Peter's at the door. Rhoda, a young girl, goes to the door and, and she says, who's there? And he says, it's Peter. And she doesn't believe him. And she said, oh no, really, who's there? And he says, it's Peter. But she doesn't open the door. So she runs back in the house and she says to everybody, Peter's here. And they all go, oh, you're crazy. Peter's not here. So somebody opens the door and lets him in. And Scripture says, according to Acts chapter 12, verse 16, they saw him and they were amazed. Does that sound like a bunch of people who are really praying in faith? Or does it sound more like how we typically pray? Expecting we want God to intervene, but maybe we don't really believe it's going to happen. See, our lives are really sometimes very, very weak because we don't pray in faith, believing God for big things. That's one of the reasons we're calling the entire church to prayer for 40 days, to, to go on this journey together so that we come before God. And I'm going to specifically ask all of New Hope to stop what they're doing at 3 in the afternoon every day for 40 days and pray. So whether you're you know, in the workplace or you're in school or you're at home, whatever you're doing, if you could stop for 60 seconds and just pray, God, we want your will done and new hope. We want your kingdom to come. We want to see you glorified in the region around Lansing. Not just Hazlitt, but the entire metro area. God, what will you do among us? That, that's why we're going to, but I'll talk more about that next week. Let's go on to verse 11. Jesus says this, give us this day our daily bread. And he's specifically talking about trusting God for the supply, the supply things that we need. And this is really important in the time of Jesus because when you were hired at the time of Christ, you were hired for one day. Now, if you were a fruit picker and you showed up to pick fruit at the fig farm, you might have work for this day, but if you showed up the next day, the fruit farmer might say to you, you know what, I got all the employees I need for today. Too bad, Sorry. So praying for this day, daily bread was really critical. Please give us the bread this day requires. But how does that translate to 2013? 
Because many people would look at this and say, that request seems kind of needless. Why would I ask God for something that I already have in abundance? Well, understand that bread here represents something very symbolic in the Bible. It's, it's not only talking about food. It's talking about all of your physical needs. God cares about your car. And believe it or not, your washing machine and your house and your food that goes on your table and the blue jeans that you put on. Those are important to your God because you're his child. So this is a form of petition. Jesus is saying, make this petition, but above all, what it really is is an affirmation. What you're really saying is, everything that I have is coming from you. Matter of fact, according to what Scripture says, James 1.17, every good thing we have comes from the gracious hand of God. You've got a few people here who have smartphones, students. You've got an iPhone that you want or maybe that you recently acquired. That's from God. Now, you might say, no, I, I paid for that. Or my parents paid for that. Okay, I'll give you that. Who made the copper that went into that phone? Just bear with me because I do this to my kids all the time. Okay? Who made the sand in the earth that was transformed into glass on the screen? Who gave man the technology to be able to develop that? Who instituted radio waves before man even knew radio waves were there? Our God. Now what we choose to do with those things corrupts them and turns them to sinful purposes. But every good thing that we have comes down from the Father. Everything from the gracious hand of God. He's the one who instituted all this. And to not thank Him for the good things that we have is ingratitude. So get this in your head. The God who created the entire universe, who breathed stars into existence according to His own word, that same God cares about the food on your table. And He cares about the money in your bank account and how you manage that. That's your God. Because He says, I'm the source. I supply all your needs. Now for, for the next verse, I'm going to put up both Luke and Matthew on the screen because we've been doing this as a side-by-side. Let me show you how they both approach this. Luke 11.4 says this, And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us Matthew 6.12 says, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. However it's familiar to you, be very, 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 very careful when you bring that one before God. Because to come before the Father and say, God, I'm, I'm asking for you to bring forgiveness to me for some way I've offended you, and you're saying that it matches up with the way that you've offended and forgiven or someone has offended and forgiven you, you be very, very careful about how you bring that before God. Here's why. This one who is praying has already called God his Father, right? So that means this one is justified. This is one who identifies, I have a relationship with the Father, and therefore he's justified as we talked about last week. He's already forgiven And he knows eternal life, but he continues to offend God because we all live in sin and we sin every day. To ask God to give us what we might refuse to give someone else is an insult to God. So when we're asking him to forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, we better make sure we've really dealt with that issue. And I understand as I examine that exactly why David come before the Father, and you see it in the book of Psalms when he said, create in me a clean heart, And renew a right spirit within me because there's a potential that I haven't come before God with a right spirit. 
And I, I just need a brand new beginning, a brand new start. Go with me to this last verse because it, it's kind of difficult, and, and I want to make sure we give it proper attention, but this is where it ends. It says this in verse 13, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now understand that from evil can be rendered in the Greek language from the evil one, meaning Satan. So deliver us from evil or the evil one. The two most intense times of battle that I find in the entire Bible are not the ones that you might think of. I'm not referring to Gideon and the Amalekites. I'm not referring to Moses and the Canaanites. I'm not even referring to David and the Philistines. Although those are incredible battles, this, what I'm referring to, is warfare on a scale that's rarely ever been seen. Perhaps you've never even encountered it in your life. But both times might catch you by surprise. And both times revolve around the life of Jesus. Uh, That might be hard for you because you might think, Jesus in battle? I don't put the two together. Well, let me take you to this place. Think, first of all, of Jesus at the very, very beginning of what he did here on planet Earth. He's around age 30. We're told that he's gone into the wilderness for 40 days of fasting and prayer. 40 days of fasting and prayer, and then at the end of his life, the night that he's in the garden, he's in fasting and he's in prayer. It's the night before he's going to be crucified. Do you know who shows up in both occasions? Satan, that's right. Satan himself shows up when Jesus is in this most intimate time of prayer. And in each case, he's coming before the face of the hallowed one to do business for God. And the catalyst for each encounter is prayer. You talk about battle on a scale that you've never seen because there's this tension in the text. In Matthew 6, it says, lead us not into temptation. This is not a request that God would cease and desist from tempting you. According to James chapter 1, we know that we cannot be tempted by God because he doesn't tempt anyone to evil. Matter of fact, look with me on the screen. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for he cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself will not tempt anyone. So that's not what's going on here. A better way to look at this is that we understand that God allows his people to be proved as to their faithfulness. So a better way to understand this actually from the Greek language is this. Father, keep us from falling away during the hour of trial. Flesh it out with me. Peter denies Jesus. We're very familiar with that, the night that Jesus is arrested. But think of the circumstances leading up to it. He's been in the garden with Jesus. All the disciples scatter and run. But Peter decides because Jesus has been taken to the high priest's palace, he wants to go see what's going on. And so he forces his way into an environment they probably should not have been in, but he wanted to hear what's going on. And in that setting, in that area, he's tempted to deny Jesus and he crushes himself by giving in. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 26, 41, look with me on the screen, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Here's my reason for saying all this. There is nothing, there is no thing in your life 
that is so sacred that Satan will not follow you into it. He followed Jesus into the most intimate place of prayer where he's talking to the Father. There are few things that drive Satan more than to come between you and Jesus. And the more righteous the setting, the more holy, the more sacred, the more pure, the more he desires to pollute it. Just look at the fall. Someday when you get a chance, read about Satan's fall from heaven. He absolutely polluted God's throne. And God had to kick him out of heaven. And there we see him showing up and polluting what Jesus is trying to do. So in both occasions, Jesus is alone. He's talking to the Father. And in the most private, the most holy place, we see Satan present his strongest temptation before the Son of God. So Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. Father, your name is holy. You're just and righteous and true, and everything about you is perfect. And when you pray, you go into a quiet place and shut out all the distractions. And in the midst of your prayer, you're going to pray, Father, keep me from the evil one. Why did Jesus tell us that? Because of what he personally encountered. Jesus, at the night he's arrested, is in the garden praying. And we see that he says, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Satan's present even in the garden, even in the place where Jesus is praying. That's how we understand that this is an amazing battle that you enter into when you enter into prayer. No wonder you're so easily distracted. See, I can wander into the most distracting self-agenda items when I'm trying to be quiet and focus on the kingdom. And rather than me ending it, let me end it for you with a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. I want you to see the way that he summed this up. If you really want to understand something about the nature of Satan and his activities, the thing to do is not to go into the dregs or the gutters of life. If you really want to know something about Satan, go away to that wilderness where our Lord spent 40 days and 40 nights. That's the true picture of Satan where you see him tempting the very Son of God. So when you think of those seven words, on earth as it is in heaven, Next time that pops in your mind, remember this moment when Jesus said what you're doing is spiritual battle. When you're asking for the kingdom to come on earth, because what's it doing? It's overthrowing Satan. That's what we're really asking for, church. So when we gather together as a church over the 40 days that are ahead of us, and we're asking you to pick up these books, understand there's a real strong reason for it. Um, here's the example for you. Mark Batterson, who wrote this book, is a pastor in Washington, D.C. Um, younger guy, and he, he, when he launched the church, Mark decided that what they really had a vision from, for, from God for was to circle Washington, D.C. with a ring of churches that would be on their knees praying for the leaders in Washington. Talking about the House, the Senate, the White House, everybody who makes up leadership. And so they don't just have one church. They have five churches now that ring Washington, D.C. And those people are praying people. This book called Draw the Circle that we're going to ask you to be picking up is the, the journal. It's the story of day by day. And each one's only a 10-minute story. And there's 40 10-minute stories about how God showed up and was active in the life of their church and in individuals who make up their church. So what we're asking you to do is pick up one of those books and take it with you because next Sunday we're, we're going to launch into the 40 days and I'll explain it a little more in, in detail at that point. 
but this is for you to work through and read through. And then Gary and myself and Chris Shimke and Michael and Debbie have gotten together and we've each produced questions to go along with a book, a prayer journal that will be available to you next weekend. And so you can keep a log of the ways that you're praying and the things that you see God doing in your life over the course of 40 days. Some of you may even want to fast during that time. If you're physically in a place where you can do that, great. But what we're asking everybody to do is go to the place where we're coming before this one whose name is holy and just and righteous, who intimately cares for us. That's how I'm going to pray right now. I'm going to pray for you and for myself and for our entire church that we would recognize as we move through this who we're coming before and that he would bless our desire. Would you do that with me? Father, hallowed be your name. Our King of Kings lifted you up in telling us that we have to come before you in such a way that we recognize the way that you provide for us and the way that you're faithful to us and that the authority of your name is not to be taken lightly. So Father, holy is your name. We pray that your kingdom would come, even despite our selfish desires, even despite some of us who really like our life on earth as it is. God, that your kingdom would come. And beyond that, we ask that your will would be done right here, right here on earth, right here in Ingham County, right here in Lansing Metroplex. God, that your will would be done and that Satan would be defeated. Father, I thank you for your provision. Thank you for the the houses that are represented here, the homes that we have, the cars that we drive, the jobs that we have, the children you've blessed us with. Father, we ask also that you would keep us from the attack of the evil one who desires to bring his forces against this church that you would even create a bubble over us. (laughs) God, that you would keep out the attacks, that you would surround this church, and that your kingdom would go forth as a result of it. Because, Father, we recognize that yours is the kingdom and the glory and the honor and the power, and it continues forever and ever and ever and ever. Because of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. Have a great week, New Hope.